Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, men and women, non-conformers and non-believers, gender X and gender equals, welcome to Eat the Storms, the poetry podcast. My name is Damien B. Donnelly and I am delighted to welcome you back today to episode 12, season 5. Thank you so much for joining us, whether that's been on Spotify, Apple, Anchor, Google, Breaker, Podbean, Player FM, Overcast, Pocketcast, Castbox, Podcast Addicts or iTunes. Today it is an extra special episode because today is the day that our new sibling, The Storms, a companion journal of poetry, prose and visual art and its inaugural issue have just headed off to the printers. It is now almost two years since I launched the podcast and since then we've had over 72 episodes, 350 guests from around the world and are available on over 12 platforms. And now we are returning poetry to the page along with its perfect companions of prose and visual art for a printed journal with thanks to the Arts Council Ireland, the Fingal County Council and Gaynor Kane who was my sub-editor for this inaugural issue. However, back to today and the all-important episode, another episode that is packed with such diversity that it was almost impossible to squeeze it into just one episode. Today we're touching down here in Ireland, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, in Germany and also where my heart still lies, in Paris, France. We have six guests to entertain you this evening, so make sure the tea is brewed, there's a mixer for the gin, a decent glass for the beer, or their cake is freshly sliced. This is Eat the Storms, and my goodness, I sure hope you enjoy the show. First up today for our globe-trotting visit to our guests, we have a very welcomed returning guest who has been with us now on each season over the past few seasons, and I am delighted to welcome him back, especially because today he's chosen to read poems that he loves himself, as opposed to the poems that we feel people want to hear. It's always a tough choice. Anyway, he is joining us from Illinois and is the author of Poems Against Cancer, which has been raising funds for St. Baldrick's Foundation since 2014. Pictures, postcards and letters from Kelsey Books and The River Singing from Workhouse Writers Press in 2019. This is Leonard Lund. Hi everybody, I'm Leonard Lund, coming to you from just outside Chicago, Illinois. I've been writing for public consumption, as it were, since 1965. And in those 57 years, I've published probably a thousand poems, read most of them, and decided that tonight, instead of trying to make a scientific wild-ass guess at what the audience might like to hear, I'd pick five pieces that I really enjoy reading for audiences. So, here we go. Sister Jeanviev Marie was driving the day's hens up the rising street when I stepped out for coffee and a pastry this morning. Moving them briskly toward the butcher's door, to be ready for dinner at the convent. It's a treat to observe her way of keeping them together, with simple gestures and a gentle voice, perhaps convincing them she's showing the way to heaven and immortal life. Despite the teaching nuns and their rulers of my younger days, I'll miss her when I come back home. 
her and the old women watching life around them from balconies and windows, comparing notes in the afternoon over dark, bitter coffee, accompanied by outraged rolls of their eyes and disparagingly pursed lips. Especially intriguing is Madame Tussaud, quietly rumored to have been fled from rather than widowed, a sharp-faced harridan whose happily ancient, rough-coated dog of blended ancestries is thoroughly devoted to her. Ah, the characters I'll tell you about over the years. Arbor and Wine Press, after a landscape by Fra Bartolomeo. This is where you brought me when we wed. I, fifteen and not yet quick with child, though filled with longings passed down by my mother and her own. You, eighteen, and poorly educated to a life not set before you in the halls your father brought the tutors to. The copse of trees is thinner now, as is my life these years alone. The room and back, where first we took each other with an innocent savagery bordering rape, is mine alone. A shrine, holding memories that end with you. At the gate, our oldest son and his son. A tom that came to clear the mice and stayed when done. A wine press calling forth the joy of life. The mist grape is as fruitless as imagined lives without this place. I hear the river singing when I think of you. That early fall in Paris, the water lapping at the broad steps on the left bank, gaining and losing intensity as the boats passed, is part of our story. We felt hidden in the vague shadows, part of love's misleading blindness. I know we were lost in our kisses, deep in each other's nearness, not oblivious to the world, but taking it as background noise. Closing my eyes reveals you in belted black slacks, a white blouse open deep at the neck, a thin plaid car coat. The thing is, we were never in Paris. We never got as far as fall. Only one of us might have been in love. If it never happened, is memory a lie? Hitchhikers in Mississippi, 1936, after a works process administration photograph by Walker Evans. The trees have forgotten summer, have drawn up slim and dark against the morning's cold, like the woman standing by the man. The canvas bag at her feet shows black beneath the dust. It holds everything but the clothes they've worn since yesterday. Her purse, its emptiness punctuated by handkerchief and brush, and the cigarettes and matches a stranger gave him last night. They are husband and wife, or lovers. They are childhood sweethearts become best friends against adversity, or supplicants praying for tomorrow. The road behind them curls like a river taking the easy way. 
not really caring where it goes as long as it's someplace else. The boy with a clock on his back can't hear the ticking, but feels the motion of the hand's movement as he walks down the alley, walks on mud-covered cobbles but doesn't leave footprints, nothing to say he's been here until he steps into the puddle that's been waiting for him, where he leaves short-lived ripples and waves on the water making the sky and walls reflected on that surface shimmer as though they were on fire for one brief moment. But he doesn't notice this, or that his shoes are now wet. He only sees the line where alley and plaza meet, the door goal on the other side, while he prays silently to do this one thing right today, to be safe from the burning scorn and ridicule that dripped from his mother's mouth like a rabid dog's foam-flecked blind anger. To be a good and acceptable son. To be on time. Thank you all very much. Next up today, we're settling down in my hometown of Dublin for a poet who lives here, but his hometown is Wolverhampton in the United Kingdom. He is a true spoken word poet who's been doing the Dublin scene here for the past few years, including the Sunflower Sessions, the Circle Sessions and Dublin's Finest. Currently working on his first collection, You're Never Too Old to Know Better, which will be with us in 2023, I'm delighted to welcome to Eat the Storms for the first time the fresh and sometimes funny stylings of Ryan Duggins. Big John had a penchant for shagging. Got the girls with his flirting and blagging. He asked, what's under your coat? She said, I'll strangle your throat. He thought, how lucky that she's into gagging. Um, that's a limerick I wrote called Big John and I do it um, usually when I just get on stage. Um, my name's Ryan Duggins. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm a Dublin-based um, poet and spoken word artist and I do that poem as a palate cleanser because usually I'm coming on after someone who's really delivering something quite profound and I need to kind of bring the audience back to my level, which is a lot lower <laughs> than than the uh, the usual poetry offerings in the city. Um I live in Dublin. I'm from Wolverhampton, which is just north of Birmingham. Uh, I've been in Dublin for six years and I, I can be seen pretty much anywhere that will have me in Dublin. Any open mic that's, uh, if you walk into a pub on a Sunday or, an, or, an, or a Monday, or any kind of weeknight and there's an unusually large group, large group of people in the corner all looking up at one person, I'll probably be in that group. Um, my stuff is um, a little less abstract than probably what the the poetry scene has like it's it's pretty much on the nose stuff no frills talking about the the minor issues <laughs> that 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 the average man would have um so most of it is about vices i talk about modern love um i try and get a giggle now and again i think most of my work is a giggle with one hand and a poke with the other um, and hopefully on the next couple of minutes journey, um, you'll get both. You'll you'll feel a certain way and you'll also have a laugh. Um, the first poem I'm going to do is called Get Me to London. Now, Dublin is the second chapter, I'd say, in my 
my story of getting out of a small city. I'm from a quite a, a working class small city in the West Midlands of the UK. Uh, I moved to London when I was 24 and Dublin when I was 29. And I think that I shared this with Irish people that left because you know, a lot of my friends would have done the, gone to Australia or New York, Vancouver, even London themselves. And I think you just get a, a notion at a young age that where you are and the environment around you is rubbing you up the wrong way. You can't quite fit in. Um, that was definitely me. This one's called Get Me to London. Get Me to London. Get me out, get me out. There's too many normals about. I've only been to see a show, but all I know is I gotta go. This cul-de-sac ain't for this cat. Get me to London. The social club, the bingo nights, the doorstep milk and nightlife fights. The local heroes on the dole. The only thing celebrated is an England goal. She's put on weight and guess who's dead? Surely they ask different things in Hampstead. I'm crap at darts and can't drink lager. So get me to London. Just give me a chance. Give me a shot. It's a capital or I'll lose the plot. I can hear them talking behind my back. Is that lad at 19 gay or smoking crack? I'm neither, lads. I just don't see me fitting in with you and thee. What you're up to? I'm not judging, but that train to Euston, I'm not budging. I miss my Fridays in the snooker hall, but man, get me to London. I haven't got a plan as such. No specific career in mind, but once I'm in Trafalgar Square, my life I'm sure I'll find. I'll fake being smart to get the grades for an unpaid internship. Who needs food when you have dreams and a shoulder with a chip? So goodbye mum and so long dad, you too have this life sussed. But I'm on the mega bus southbound, where to? Man, as long as I can walk to the Thames, I'm really not fussed. Get Me to London, a poem that I think resonates with everybody that knew they had to leave. Um, this one I wrote is called Work No Thanks, and it was a kind of nudge to anyone who, around Poetry Day Island, which was a few months ago, who was struggling with working a full-time job and having a creative pathway. I think it's easy to forget that everybody did that. Every writer, musician, singer, anyone that, that wanted to bring something to the world, also had to go to a coffee shop to earn some money. So, like, it's it's not a new story. It's a story that goes hundreds of years. So this one's a reminder. It's called Work No Thanks, and it's written from someone who maybe doesn't get it. Work No Thanks. I'm not doing that. No way I'm doing this. An actual job. Are you taking the piss? I've got the voice. I've got the words. You lot of sheep. Go with the herds, absurd to think, nay, offensive talk. To think this genius would walk the walk of lesser men who earn their keep doing anything but making the audience weep. A job for bobs and plainy janes for people who have lesser brains. I need all the hours in all the days to make the world see it all my way. So let me scoff in coffee shops or spend my Wednesdays in my flippy flops and then once a week I'll take the stage. That's the way. I deserve my wage. Of course, art comes from being free. Would you give an office job to Harper Lee or make Stephen King mop floors in schools? You'd never hear of any ghouls. Only idiots working overalls. Imagine John Steinbeck hammering walls or John Grisham fitting sinks and pipes and clogging drains of baby wipes. You lot can keep your rat race dreams. That's not a worthy pursuit for a man of my esteem. Because I'll be busy in the clouds or singing verses to the crowds. As many people as that venue allows, making all my family proud. A job? Come on. Between me and you, you'd never see Dickens shine a Scrooge's shoe.
and that's worth no thanks. And everybody in that poem did that job. Stephen King was a high school janitor. Harper Lee was an office clerk. Um, Dickens was a, a shoe shiner, like, and it's just easy to forget that that path is not new. Um, we'll switch gears a little bit. I wrote this poem about a the certain guy that I think we all know. He's the guy that's a little bit too cool for school. He has a job. He works where you work, but he 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 just thinks he's a level above. Like he's the kind of guy that would like if you asked him to go to a concert, uh, he'd say no because he only likes intimate venues where you can really feel the music. That kind of guy. Um, it's called he wears Dior Sauvage. Um, because Dior Sauvage is an aftershave, I think is uh, quite common around that around that kind of kind of bloke. Um, this one's called "He Wears Dior Sauvage." Guess his beige chinos from Massimo Duty quite partial to a foreign cutie. His hair wax strength is heavy duty. Likes to give off an air of snooty. Leaves Brown Thomas with his man bag clutch, the geezer who wears Savage. A metrosexual anti jock who'd never wear a coloured sock. Time is money, so watch the clock. Thinks the holy grouse his average cock. His girlfriend's boyfriends think he's harmless. Watch out for that guy that wears Savage. You'd never see him dead in Spain. Has loads of stuff in that massive brain. Holds a wood handled umbrella for when it rains. His hometown's loss is all our gains. How lucky we all are to know the guy that wears Savage. He picks a restaurant for the views, wears all year long his brown boat shoes. Unless it's an old-fashioned, he'll refuse. His lovers all have bad reviews. They hated jazz, but went along when dragged by the whiff of Sauvage. He was the kid at school with a can of Lynx, the first to rock a salmon pink. And now is Dior's kicking up a stink. Do not buy that twat a drink. He doesn't like pubs anyway. Unless it has a jukebox. What an arse. The geezer that wears Sauvage. I think we all know that kind of guy. Um, that was actually written about a guy that I knew who um, wouldn't go to a gig with me because uh, a couple of years ago he saw the same guy in a pub and thought, no, I'm not going to go and support him. N awful guy. <laughs> the last one I'm going to do is called Grab a Gram of Coke. And it's a poem um, around vices. So like, I luckily have been able to dabble in various vices and nothing's really happened to me. Uh, which is great, but I know a lot of people where vices hit them at a certain time and um, they weren't able to leave. It hit them in a susceptible time of their lives where they were willing to 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 be taken away, and they did. This one's called uh, Grab a Gram of Coke. Your bosses say your time is up, the doggo dies and still a pup. Your speech therapist tells you to just shut up. How's a bloke meant to put up with this storm of a life and a teacup? Drop that text. Grab a gram of coke. The mirror says you're going grey. Split the cheque with her because you can't pay even when it's Valentine's Day. Take me fucking far away to an ATM for a gram of coke. You can't keep up at five aside. She slips over her mates. You know she lied. I'm on a very slippery slide and life's not taking in my stride. But it's got to be midnight somewhere though. And I've still got that gram of coke. So who's got the bag? Because life's a drag, but it'll be all fine with a cheeky line. Who gives a shit if the gaff's a dump? You can't see it anyway with a couple of bumps. Who cares if no one is around? My friends are nowhere to be found. I'll get new ones who aren't as dry. Sure, it's happened a few times, but I don't cry because life's a journey after all. And my phone 
will always have new people to call. So the last few events I've left on my own, check out the new message that's just been sent to my phone. Mate, great to meet you. You're as mad as me. Drop me a line, wink, for a beer or three. Just ignore the message below. You need to cop on. Life's not a game. Your antics are putting our family to shame. Your mother's crying again and you're to blame. So sort it out, Dad. That was grab a gram grab a gram of coke. Um, Damien, thank you so much for having me on Eat the Storms. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully I'll see you and have all of your listeners listening to me again at some point in the future. Thank you very much indeed. Another first timer to the podcast now, taking us to Berlin in Germany, although she's just finished her PhD in anarchist political theory at the Ulster University in Northern Ireland. With research focusing on viewing linear time as a social construct and in understanding how this relates to power struggles, she then employs this in her creative writing, applying these methodological principles to her own personal experience. With work featured in Burning Wood Literary Journal and the Anarchist Essays podcast, to name but a few, this is Lainey Lennox. Hi, my name is Lainey Lennox, and I'm going to be reading a poem today called B.B. Turncoat Provo Lover. The name comes from a piece of graffiti that was on the end of the last street that I lived in in Northern Ireland. I did change the person's name, but... It's sort of an homage, I guess, to my time on that street in particular, but a bit more broadly to my time in Northern Ireland in general. As you can probably tell from my accent, I'm American, but I spent the majority of my 20s in Ireland, mostly in the north, but for about a year in Galway as well. And I've just found that in my writing, it's the north is something in particular that I'm returning to a lot and sort of trying to process what that time meant. So I'll go ahead and read it once, and to borrow a format from the great Patrick Otuma's podcast, Poetry on Bound, I'll read it once, talk a bit about it, and then end the podcast by reading it again. B.B. Turncoat Provo Lover Read the warning on the wall at the end of the street. After the last house, the wall that set a boundary. In that space that belonged to no one which meant it could always be theirs by omission. Somewhere between a death threat and signal to leave, it appeared unexpectedly, for most, overnight as always. The ice cream van soon followed. It was not supposed to be here, never on this street. The street she chose because it was small enough, 12 attached to either side. The most space she could find in her budget. A whole house after spare rooms and small damp spaces in lockdown for months. The lockdowns brought them. She should have foreseen that. People out of work and needing money. And the ice cream men always had money. Sometimes she thought about going to the supermarket when the ice cream van was there. Internally, she refused to be kept inside on her own street. Externally, she drew the curtains and locked the door when she heard the music. So many things just weren't worth it. This is, of course, how they remain. She chose it because there was a piece of land you could call a garden at the end of the street. Beside her house, the last on the row. The landlord told her she could do what she wanted with it. Not explicitly hers, but hers by omission. 
She planned to grow herbs and vegetables and tell the neighbors that they could take what they wanted. It was a stupidly naive thing to think that the ice cream van would not come to her street and that she could talk to her neighbors. So I think in many ways, although, as I said, this is written about the last street that I lived in in Northern Ireland for only about a year in total. I lived on the island for about eight years, sort of off, to, off and on, going back to renew visas and things like that during that period of time. But in many ways, in describing my experiences on that last street I lived, I think I'm, I was trying to encompass and understand my experience in somewhere like Belfast more generally. And I would really like to thank Anna Burns for kind of, I think, really giving me the language to talk about that because, you know, reading her her amazing novel Milkman really gave me a way to think about things that aren't really talked about still in Northern Ireland. You know, this this street, this last street that I lived on in the north part of Belfast was in the general area that the film Belfast by Kenneth Branagh was set. So it's this part of the city that I really felt had, in some ways, got sort of a lot of attention and fame during the time that I was actually living there. But I felt I felt sort of pained in many ways watching the movie because it felt like the start of what that part of the city eventually became, that part that I was I was kind of living in, and some of the more difficult and and even sort of uh, oppressive elements of that. And now that I'm living in Berlin and really trying to process my time in the North, I, I think I'm still in this place where the only way I can do it is just by describing what I saw. And I often find that when I try to, to just describe things that I see, and I think that poetry, I write in a lot of different genres and actually usually not poetry, but when I'm in that place of really still trying to grasp and understand something, I find it to be such a good medium for that, to just describe what I'm seeing and to try to make sense of that. So with that being said, I will read it, read this poem one more time and just just end on that note. And I hope that by describing my experiences and just what I saw living on this particular street, I've given some sense of Belfast that's not, even though this is about quite a scary and negative and a lot of ways oppressive thing, I wanted to end the poem by speaking about this potential I saw in this piece of land that I really wanted to be this kind of community garden because I think there's still a lot of hope in that and there's a lot of great things happening in Belfast as well. And I'm interested to see how the city continues to change through the years and maybe how even the part of town that I was living in will, will be changed by the time I go back. So anyway, having said all that, I will read the poem once more. B.B. Turncoat Provo Lover Read the warning on the wall at the end of the street. After the last house, the wall that set a boundary, and that space that belonged to no one, which meant it could always be theirs by omission. Somewhere between a death threat and signal to leave, it appeared unexpectedly for most, overnight as always. The ice cream van soon followed. It was not supposed to be here, never on this street. 
the street she chose because it was small enough, twelve attached either side. The most space she could find in her budget, a whole house, after spare rooms and small damp places and lockdown for months. The lockdowns brought them, she should have foreseen that. People out of work and needing money, and the ice cream men always had money. Sometimes she thought about going to the supermarket when the ice cream van was there. Internally, she refused to be kept inside on her own street. Externally, she drew the curtains and locked the door when she heard the music. So many things just weren't worth it. This is, of course, how they remain. She chose it because there was a piece of land you could call a garden at the end of the street, beside her house, the last on the row. The landlord told her she could use, she could do what she wanted with it. Not explicitly hers, but hers by omission. She planned to grow herbs and vegetables and tell the neighbors to take what they wanted. It was a stupidly naive thing to think, that the ice cream van would not come to her street and that she could talk to her neighbors. From Germany now to the United States for another sparkling spoken word performer and professional writer who's been featured in the New York Times, Stone, Berries, Sheen, the Magazine and Inspire More, to name but a few. This year, she was the winner of Empowering Justice Foundation Poetry Contest and took third place in the St. Charles's County Poetry and Art Contest. While in 2021, she took Canada by storm, coming second place at the Poetry Slam, taking it global in Toronto. I am thrilled to introduce you now to Tracy Neal. Hi, my name is Tracy Neal. I live in the United States. I'm from the state of South Carolina. I guess a little bit about me. I used to be two years ago a pre-K aide, which is a teacher assistant. So I was basically considered the help. (laughs) But I always knew that I wanted to write, especially perform my writing. And I knew at five years old that I wanted to be a writer. And I actually started to perform my poetry when I was 14. I'm 33 now, so that was 19 years ago. And I still love to write. I I still love to perform. Um, But I actually thought I would be a certified elementary school teacher. So for my state in South Carolina at the time, I had to pass a teacher exam in order to get my certification. Well, I never did. (laughs) I tried to pass the exam for 10 years and failed 10 times. (laughs) But I think during that time, it taught me how to endure, how to keep going, how to bounce back, how to not give up. And when I finally realized at 30 years old that I needed to go after my real dream. It has been nonstop ever since. I'm so grateful for all of the opportunities that I've been given, especially in my previous background. So um, it's very humbling to know that 
even when you might feel like it's too late, you can still just go for it and things can fall into place. So I just wanted to leave that nugget. Um, The poems that I perform, they're usually not very long. So that's why I wanted to kind of give you a background of me. And um, I just like inspiring people. I like being transparent. I think vulnerability is something that's lacking Um, when it comes to poetry. I think people can be more vulnerable. It builds connection and it draws people to the person. And I feel like we all have storms. So in this particular poem, I actually wrote it when I was in high school. I think I might have been a junior or a senior. And it's still relevant today because I guess every time we're able to wake up, you know, there might be a storm that tries to take place in our lives, a moment. And we need to be able to weather the storm. We need to be able to get through. So this is like my theme poem when I feel down or sad or mad, whatever, to get through. It's called Hiding Behind the Corner. I used to be the girl hiding behind the corner. I felt like a loner. Yet even when I cried, I thought I had died to a world I had to face, but still the people lied. I must admit I couldn't take it. I truly believed I wouldn't make it. Then one day something inside this vessel said, don't fake it, but break it. So I broke the walls that were tearing me apart and ripping out my heart. Until the fall I was about to hit, it came into a line for start. I just kept running since I couldn't stop. I ran like a criminal trying to get away from the cops. I got rid of the haters, the perpetrators, the two-facers, and the instigators. I changed my way of thinking and didn't mind blinking. If times were too hard, I wouldn't stack it up with those deck of cards. I became stronger, could stand longer, not trying to measure up to a world going under. I gained respect and advanced my intellect to a place I didn't expect. Now I can walk up to a person untimid and shy. I'm a newfound eagle and I'm ready to fly. I have to speak before my spirit leaks with anticipation, determination, imagination, and an accepted application. No, I'm not always accepted by those around me, but my soul has light that a blind person can see. I have a voice that needs to be spread in order to have true peace in my head. My spirit creates a difference in the essence of the confident presence I show when I decided not to be led. Thank you. It's been a while since our next London writer and performer joined us on the podcast, but I'm delighted to welcome him back. Having first heard him read the fantastic Poetry LGBT hosted by the incomparable Andrina Leanne, which took place on Zoom during COVID. He graduated from the Roehampton University with a degree in drama, theatre and performance studies and is happiest when working on projects and collaborating with other artists. His poetry covers various themes and he's currently got two projects on the go, one called Beauty Within the Cracks, which you heard last time, and Art is My Superpower. It's a pleasure to introduce you once again to Manny. 
Few steps away from nature, I worked on this last year. This poem is off my poetry project, Art is My Superpower. I talk about how nature makes me feel and more. Few steps away from nature. It was a sunny, bright, lovely day. A day so comforting. The kind of one that was inviting me with a glowing invitation. So I decided to spend some time absorbed in its presence. I love this grand and gorgeous paradise where I can sit and reflect about life. This is my space to create art, revealing chapters of my life, creating change, enjoying the best of what nature could bring. Seeing all the different plants come together, a floral fabulous fragrance fills the air while I stand in awe. The trees join my side, keeping me company. The grass is so green. I love the sense of freshness and growth. Nature is so special. Nature is amazing. It's so beautiful. I like to have a still moment every once in a while and take in the beauty all around me. The melodic wind sings in unison as they parade in the breeze. The sunshine sparkles and glistens everywhere. I can sit here, enjoying everything for a while, in this magical piece of paradise. My foundation slash Wings of Angels is about my creative foundation, Be The Change. Also how it's helped me find my wings, to take that leap of faith and find my voice. This poem is of my project, Beauty Within the Cracks. I love the metaphors in this piece. When I was writing this poem, I was visualising everything. My foundation slash wings of angels. My foundation continues to battle against the shadowing winds that try to knock it down, evaporating the noise that begins to gather. Marks on the pillars begins to appear like scars on the skin each one telling a different story. Four walls stand tall on a strong promise. Shiny, glistening windows look out into the future, encouraging words imprinted in stone. I weave together all I've been through, and forwardly, I press on ahead. My wings begins to appear. It's magical, sparkling, special, baby blue colouring. The outline of the wings are all over the place, like a cotton wool sky, beautifully imperfect. My silhouette is boldly perched above, while the lights continue to flash, observing the destruction below. I'm now ready for the takeoff. I hope you'll all join me. Our final guest today takes us to Paris. Although she's currently stalking the streets as a vampire here in Dublin, at least that's the impression she gave when I saw her perform at Who Let the Books Out earlier this month, a live poetry event hosted by Anne Tannum and Fiona Bulger, who will be my guests very soon on the podcast. This guest was born in Paris with Irish, French and American heritage and you can see some of their work in places like Bayan Review, Dance Macabre or the Beltway Poetry Quarterly. 
This is work that investigates migration paths and experiences of liminality with stage performances combining poetry, physical theatre and drag in order to celebrate the queer and the unknowable in each of us. If they're performing somewhere near you, then I'd make sure you get a front row seat. This is Joe Black. Hello, my name is Joe Black. I was born in Paris. I'm in Dublin now. And I first moved to Dublin in 2020, so I thought I'd start off with a poem about my first four months getting to know the city under lockdown. In which I lock eyes with my new neighbour, standing above him in the darkness of my rooftop, my face fully painted with vampire makeup as his dog begins to bark and fireworks explode all around us. September. I hear footsteps at midnight, one block from Francis Street. Raise my head and a red fox comes running. There's trash on the road and the whole city's asleep. October. Every sundown the children throw fire at the sky as if they wish to crack the heavens wide open on Halloween night. I paint over my reflection, blacken the mirrors as I pass. My neighbor asks what I'm doing alone on my rooftop. He doesn't see you standing with me, your breath drawing ghosts. November. There is something to waiting like pain. Fast forgotten once it's gone, but filling everything while you're in it. Sunlight passes through the window and shatters on the floor. Ten slow breaths in the kitchen. I lied to your face when I said I didn't love you anymore. December. The distillery bleeds beer through the street. A smell that clings to my clothes, dark foam glowing black in the moonlight. And I've never prayed before, but tonight the saints stand before me headless. I listen to their fingernails scratching at my walls. The trap is empty, but tomorrow I already know. I'll lift the lid to find the beast staring back. This next one is for someone I don't see too often, but I care about a lot. It's called Ushanka. There is a lump in my grandfather's brain. Pushing ever so gently at the front of his skull, the lump is turning him into the rhinoceros he was always meant to be. My rhinoceros grandpa hunts through the fridge for coffee ice cream at breakfast makes a lunch of a single cinnamon roll. At dinner, burns a double batch of chocolate chip cookies that he devours to the very last crumb. In my grandfather's basement, there's a Soviet army fur hat, a Lenin poster facing a Karl Marx poster hanging over a bookshelf with many red bindings. In 1974, a U.S. government official was sent to check his basement for the bomb shelter list. His basement was not put on the bomb shelter list. Even then, the lump was already growing. 
imperceptibly larger as a wall broke open, imperceptibly taller as two buildings burned down. The lump in my grandfather's brain has decided it never got to know me that well. What is a tiny blonde child after all but a second less threatening lump? My grandpa finds the lump's words convincing. The lump is made of the same genetic fabric as my grandpa, a piece of my grandpa pushing at himself, my grandpa finding a path through his own skull. My grandpa switches sides, makes a pact with the outside. If I dig myself out, if I push myself through, will you be waiting for me just across the line? And finally, in honor of storms, this is a poem for Noah's wife. You were the first to see the clouds gather over, their bellies heavy and drooping with a watery death. You sowed a seed from every tree in the lining of your dress because you knew the rain was coming. These were careful stitches sewn with careful hands, every thread of the old world mapped in the fabric when Noah came to tell you what the Lord had asked your biggest pot was already on the fire handcrafted clay in a cradle of embers the smoke kissed its secrets in the webs of your fingers how the walls of your house were to bend into wood the floor come alive underfoot, swaying, rocking you into this new world where every beast you saw was to be the youngest of its kind. And you, once again made mother by a man who knew nothing of care. We will need barley for the elephants, you said, but Noah didn't listen, already left to rig sails to your roof the water crashing at your doorstep. A jagged part of your heart begged you let the water in in that moment. Let the world be swallowed into something quiet and still. You could already see how the light would pierce the surface as you sank. You could see horses frozen, hooves upside down, and the water above you as they were silently claimed by the deep. The hands that set to rigging rope were not your own. They danced before you with a fierce resolution that you did not feel. All you wanted was to break open wide so you could drown the whole world in your own drowning. Still that night, you found a place in your home for every creature. Stroked your hand over claws and feathers. You held open their jaws to press ripened berries over hungry tongues. Slit the tips of your fingers. Let the serpent suckle drops of your own blood. In the moonlight, you watched every beast asleep with its mate and wept for being the only creature loveless. There was a day when the birds came to find you at your window, told you something was left to be saved. You reached the deck, cast your net to catch a foal that was stranded in the current. As it struggled on board, Noah bade you cast it back in the water. 
Only two of every creature was the Lord's command. But you gathered up the full in a blanket, carried it away from him without a single word. In your room you watched it struggle to stand on shaking legs, its fragile ribs convulsing with the stuttering fire of some small hope that dearly wants to be alive. All night you stroked up and down its tired flank, cupped the hot gust of its breath in the cradle of your hands, and somehow when dawn came you were still floating, floating on an earth laid bare. <laughs> Now, just before we go, I'm going to leave you at two poems from my upcoming full collection, Enough, which will be published by the Hedgehog Poetry Press on the 29th of August this year. And this first poem is dedicated to our guest today, Joe Black, who is no stranger to the sensational Paris weekly event extraordinaire that is Spoken Word Paris, hosted in the basement of Au Chat Noir in the 11th arrondissement, a place where I often shared my tales and left lines I didn't want to carry around anymore. Chat Noir means black cat, and this poem is called Temporary Things After Au Chat Noir. Listen. She said, delicious can die young, enough can come without a warning. A scratch doesn't always leave a scar. Eternity is a temporary thing. And I heard. Now I store moments in between the pages where I once pressed flowers. As the nights devour the stars, bleeding their way through this clawing space. Time is temporary, but experience counts for eternity. Even in basements, bleeding can be beautiful. I sip from the saucer of liquid lovers, soon to be ghosts lost to scent who'll pour me in poetry after we've penned the ending I'll sing of in the beatnik of the black cat. I'll lay carefully those meanders along these lines, lives that sparked a flame before moving on to the meniscus of someone else's milk. So this second and final poem I'm going to share with you now is from the same section in the collection, The Loving. The collection is broken down into six different sections. And this poem is called Ons Avenue de President Wilson, or 11 Avenue de President Wilson. And it reflects on all my visits to museums while trying to understand the difference between being fitted into a frame or finding your own mould. Very often on Sundays, I would sit at the Museum of Modern Art of Paris, gazing for hours at Matisse's mastery. Onze, Avenue de President Wilson. Sometimes it was that simple. Lines that guide you where to lie between the fluidity of all the flesh. Sometimes the frame does not fit. A canvas can be pulled too tight to comfort. 
The form does not cooperate to hospital corners. We lunge at desire, but lie about that too. Strike poses that appear pure in our posture, but we are prostitutes. Selling the slices of ourselves we cannot swallow. Sometimes it was that simple. You on your back, me on my knees. You turning over me, looking for the way out, but caught in lines too cold to be constrained within a frame. Sometimes I sat in a musée on a Sunday, wondering how the model felt when the master moulded them into something else. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, men and women, non-conformers and non-believers, gender X and gender equals, we've reached the end of another episode of Eat the Storms, the poetry podcast. My name is Damien B. Donnelly and I'd like to thank you all for joining us here today, tomorrow, next week or next year or whenever it is you have tuned in on your preferred podcast platform, which could be Spotify, Apple, Anchor, Google, Breaker, Podbean, Player FM, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Podcast Addicts or iTunes. A huge thank you to all of my guests today on the show who've been Joe Black, Manny, Tracy, Neil, Lainey, Lennox, Ryan, Duggins and Leonard Lund. For details of all of my guests, head on over to www.eatthestorms.com. Click on the podcast section and there you'll find a blog post for every episode. This was episode 12, season 5. Now, while you're over at Eat the Storms website, you can check out all the details for the Storms Journal, where very soon you'll be able to check out all the bios for my guest contributors. You'll be able to purchase your own copy in the store, and also you'll be able to find details of how to submit to issue two when submissions open in September. Okay, that's for me here at Eat the Storms. Thank you so much again for joining us today. It's August tomorrow, so if the sun is shining near you, enjoy it. If you're heading off on holiday, have a fantastic time. My birthday is coming up this month, and to celebrate, the Hedgehog Poetry Press are launching my debut full collection, Enough, which celebrates my love affair in all its tempestuous shades with Paris. So check that out on the 29th of August. And until then, take care, be safe, be well, and of course, as always, Stay bloody poetic!